You don't need to convince someone that the world is ending to believe that Bitcoin is good. You don't have to convince someone that, uh, that, that you know, yeah, I mean, the, the, all you have to do is say, look, internet money is good. Neutral internet money is good. Um, and so, you know, BPI's messaging and communication sort of strictly follows that principle of mine, which is just ignore the fluff and cut right to the chase. You know, what is it that people care about? In this case, with policymakers, they care about U.S. interests. So, you know, I'm not going to spend too much time trying to convince someone that my entire worldview is correct and that to understand Bitcoin, they have to change their entire views on central banking, on governance, on monetary policy, on all of these other things. Uh, it's far easier to say, look, here are key U.S. interests. Here is how an open, credibly neutral monetary network advances them. Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Builders and Bitcoin podcast, a podcast about the people who bring Bitcoin to life. I'm your host, Rod, and I go by the handle BitKite on Twitter. I was fortunate to have the founder and co-executive director of the Bitcoin Policy Institute, David Zell, in the studio. This was another jam-packed and extensive episode. We covered a number of topics in less than 60 minutes, including what he does, why and how to talk Bitcoin with policymakers, do we really need nonprofits like BPI? Why should U.S. policymakers care about Bitcoin? His simple framework for Bitcoin? How David got into Bitcoin and why he thinks he was too early? What is a think tank and why he spends his time working in one? The probability of Bitcoin-friendly bills being passed? An amazing story how he disrupted $3.5 billion of financing for private prisons in Alabama? What BPI is doing to advance Bitcoin adoption? how to talk their language, how do policymakers learn about Bitcoin, how to donate and why they use a third-party donation site, and then finally, the team behind BPI and his biggest ask of me and you. I'm excited for you all to give it a listen, so let's just jump right in. David, how the heck are you? I'm good, man. Dude, fresh off uh, CNBC? Yeah, doing better now that I'm working at Bitcoin Park. <laughs> Man, we love having you. That's for sure. Um, so all joking aside, you literally were just right off CNBC, huh? Yeah, yeah. So wh what were you talking about? Uh, just normie stuff. Uh, they wanted to know my opinion on the uh, you know SEC uh, uh, investigation into Coinbase, the charges that were filed against the insiders for uh, allegedly insider trading. Uh, they wanted to talk about macro. They wanted to talk about the Bitcoin price, um, I just kind of said, look, uh, Bitcoin is different than cryptocurrency. Fortunately, Bitcoin is a commodity and uh, we're not dealing with regulatory uncertainty. So eh, it's the same game every time. I, they ask broad questions. I try to pivot and mm -hmm. just talk about Bitcoin. Love it, man. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing that. I mean, um, it's a lot of work just to get on these interviews and answer these normie type questions consistently. So kudos to you on that. Thanks. And I did use the word crypto a few times, uh, you know, but I did make the distinction between Bitcoin and crypto. So that's what matters. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. So I guess, you know, one of the questions that uh, I've asked uh, the last two guests just to kind of kick this whole uh, podcast off um, is when people even like on a CNBC interview or somebody on the streets or your you know, family members, colleagues, friends from college, right? Like when they ask like, David, what do you do? How do you answer that question? Uh, I usually say I work in tech. <laughs> 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 and then if they say what, I say uh, payments. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it just depends on whether or not I want to have like an hour conversation yeah. about Bitcoin. So the evasive answer is usually I work in tech or I work in tech policy. The truthful answer is that I'm the founder of the Bitcoin Policy Institute. Yeah. So let's even maybe I'll even uh, tailor the question. You got a potential big donor who understands Bitcoin, right? And uh, they want to support the uh, uh, advancement of uh, Bitcoin adoption at a policy level. Like, how would you answer uh, when they say, "Hey, David, how like what does the Bitcoin Policy Institute do, and what do you do specifically?" We advance the worldview that Bitcoin is good for the United States, that it benefits U.S. interests. There is no shortage of content out there about why Bitcoin is good, whether, uh, you know, whether it's a moral good, um, tons of content, uh, a good investment, tons of content, 
Uh, but there's not a lot of content that explains why Bitcoin is good for the United States. And so when you think about the concept of orange pilling, right, you're usually trying to convince someone uh, either that they should buy Bitcoin uh, or that it's cool and that it's good. Uh, neither of those are really sufficient, though, to like orange pill the, the government. Uh, and so what we do is uh, through research, uh, data analysis, uh, uh, we, we sort of bring experts, uh, academics, policy people, you know, lawyers, climate scientists, economists, national security thinkers, uh, and we write and think about uh, uh, a vision of an America that is strengthened by a rising Bitcoin. And, and that's sort of the, the key thing that we do. Yeah, well, that sounds great and appreciate that. You know, one of the conversations that we've had in the past is around um, how we think about government. And one of the questions I have is, do we actually need a quote-unquote lobbyist for Bitcoin or do we need to have these conversations, right, with the government? I mean, do, if we think Bitcoin's an inevitability and it's a grassroots movement, why do we need I mean, not to challenge you, but just put you on the spot. But like, why do we need folks like you guys? I think you got to separate Bitcoin the network from Bitcoiners. I'm not too worried about the Bitcoin network. Uh, it is the problem. It's the most secure technological protocol in existence. Uh, and it's going to outlive all of us most likely. We, however, as Bitcoin users are we're, we're, we're meat sacks. You know, we're, we're, <laughs> I think you we're, said flesh sacks we're last flesh time. Sacks. Yeah. yeah, we're pretty vulnerable especially when we live in a, a state that has a monopoly on violence. So um, I view what we do more as helping Bitcoin users uh, than, you know, being something that's necessary for Bitcoin, the network, to continue producing blocks and facilitating uh, sovereign store and transfer of wealth for anyone with an internet connection. It's just uh, that Bitcoin doesn't free you from the repercussions of using this technology. Uh, you can make whatever payment you'd like, but if the people with the monopoly on violence come to your house with guns and say that you're a terrorist because you used this network, uh, the robustness of Bitcoin's protocol will have no bearing on uh, your individual safety. So I think the world is a better place when uh, American government and policymakers view Bitcoin as a good thing like the internet and not a bad thing like uh, – uh, yeah, a, a tool for terrorists and uh, the people yeah. that are trying to burn it all down. Yeah, and so, you know, depending on where you get your news and your information, what groups you can have a, a echo chamber of, you know, super bullish or super bearish news, uh, whether that's – and it can be country-specific as well. You can be super bullish on uh, the U.S. You could be super bearish on uh, the U.S. Why should folks, I guess, be bullish on U.S.? the U.S. Uh, adopting Bitcoin based on your conversations that you've had? Depends on which folks you mean. Like why should regular Bitcoiners care about the state of Bitcoin in the United States or why, you know, American policymakers should? The latter. Why a policymakers should care exactly. about it. Yeah. Uh, I think you got to start with the internet. Um, you know, for the longest time, uh, you had to have a .mil or a .edu domain to get, on, to get online. And the reason why was because uh, policymakers were worried that if everyday people could, God forbid, use the internet for commerce or, or just access the internet at all, that quickly it would become rife with porn and scams <laughs> and spam. And of course they were right. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Um, but fortunately, in the early 90s, uh, when, you know, the restrictions on use of the internet for commerce were lifted, in addition to all of these annoying sort of uh, externalities of rising internet adoption, we also saw uh, uh, the most fundamental shift in, I mean, in anything uh, for, for, the, you know, for the last 100, 150, 200 years. Um, now, anyone anywhere in the world could communicate, share information and ideas, start businesses with anyone, uh, no matter where they were located. Uh, and that process of, of new internet-enabled uh, business models and businesses led to meteoric returns for investors, to massive growth to the U.S. economy, to further cementing of U.S. leadership, 
and to the proliferation of the fundamental ideals of this country uh, uh, sort of spreading spreading abroad, right? Uh, open access to information wound up being good for liberal democracies and bad for closed communist authoritarian societies. And so I tell that example because now the State Department funds internet infrastructure all over the world. So within this, you know, few decades span, we got from a point where the exportation of cryptography was illegal, where commerce on the internet was illegal, where people were unified in their view that this technology was going to do nothing but make life more difficult for everyone, to a point where your taxpayer dollars now go toward, at least in part, funding infrastructure for the internet for global citizens, for non-U.S. residents. So I think that fundamentally, uh, Bitcoin is good for the United States because the open flow of value, just like the open flow of information, benefits democracies and open societies and harms authoritarians and closed societies. Now, there are a bunch of sort of sub-reasons we could get into about different things that I think Bitcoin helps the U.S. achieve, but fundamentally, that's what it's about. Um, We we need more openness. We need more uh, uh, free flow of ideas, capital, information. Uh, And so if you think that the internet was good for the United States, then Bitcoin is just the logical conclusion over that. uh, Of that. So – if you're an if you're an OG, uh, I think the best way to describe our framing would be it's very similar to like the kind of Andreas style like money over internet protocol narratives that were really popular in like 2013, 2014, mm-hmm. 2015. Um, we think that's the kind of the most persuasive way to talk about this stuff because people don't get Bitcoin. Even the oldest like dinosaur politicians do understand the internet. So. A good segue, because you have a number of conversations. You're writing a lot of research. For these new policymakers, um, and I think you, you said this really well in one of our converse, previous conversations, how do you distill uh, what is Bitcoin down to, like, let's say, one or two sentences in terms of the narrative? Because you, you mentioned the uh, you know, the question of or, uh, whether or not the world is a better place with or without Bitcoin, I think is the, how you framed it in previous conversations. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a helpful way to, to start to think about uh, the kind of net benefits of Bitcoin, right? Asking that question, not should we ban it? Because we really can't. There's not much we can do. You know, you can sort of seethe and cope all of you, all you want, but like Bitcoin exists. Um, so there's no going back. And the, the, you know, the interesting question is, are we better off for it? I think the answer is yes. Um, to your first question, how do you explain Bitcoin in one or two sentences? It, it's the only credibly neutral monetary network that allows anyone with a smartphone uh, or an internet connection to make a transaction that cannot be censored, seized, canceled uh, to anyone anywhere in the world practically for free and with basically final settlement instantly. That's it. It's a payment network uh, that's really, really good at what it does and, and has no competitor. Amazing. I, I like the dumbed down version, which uh, basically was like global neutral internet money is good. Government money monopoly on currency is bad. Yeah, that would be the two bullet point summation of my my worldview on this. Yeah, it's it's a good thing to have Internet money that's credibly neutral, that's uh, uh, available for anyone to use no matter what you look like or what your background is. Uh, And it's bad. Uh, Monopolies are bad, right? We know that monopolies are bad. We know that when there's only one game in town, uh, consumers uh, uh, suffer. Why is it any different with with money? I mean, even even today, like, you know, you you say you live in New York, right? You wake up, you leave your apartment, um, you buy a bagel with cash. You walk to the subway, you tap your phone to pay for your ticket. And while you're riding, uh, you realize that you haven't paid your friend from drinks from the night prior. So you open up Venmo or Cash App or maybe even Strike and pay them back. And so already in the span of like 45 minutes, you know, you may have used three different monetary networks that interoperate and offer uh, very distinct sets of uh, advantages and challenges 
Uh, and so I think it's really not that radical to say that market-based monetary networks deserve to exist alongside state-backed monetary networks because that's already the world that we live in mm -hmm. where sort of public and private monies interoperate and at least in theory uh, offer consumers both call it safety and innovation respectively. Now, that's not necessarily my view, but that's not a radical take. It's kind of just an obvious observation. Uh, there are a whole lot of reasons why a, a government monopoly on money is bad, uh, but when that happens alongside proposals to get rid of cash, that's where things really start to get bleak and scary. Yeah. So this is also a good segue into, uh, by the way, not to dox you, but you're uh, probably half my age and I'm extremely inspired by you, uh, that you're dedicating your time. And I mentioned this before. It's a Wences Caceres quote that I love. It's like you're spending your time, capital, and reputation pretty much all in on Bitcoin and advancing Bitcoin adoption. I'm curious everyone's kind of origin story, like how did you get into Bitcoin? But more, and then as a follow-up question, out of where any place you could spend your time, capital and reputation, why a quote-unquote think tank? Ooh, two, two fun questions. Uh, I got into Bitcoin in middle school um, doing some <laughs> – Yeah, so you're some, definitely uh, – Some unsavory uh, uh, thing. Nothing too crazy. I went to a small high school that had, you know, uh, uh, like fifth grade all the way up through uh, high school and uh, – Every year, uh, the older students would go in on a group fake ID order, and I realized there was an arbitrage with Bitcoin. Uh, if you paid in Bitcoin, you could get half off. So nice. that was my introduction to, to Bitcoin. Uh, there wasn't much out there at the time. Like there were YouTube videos. There were like blog posts. There was the, the talk forum. But I didn't really pay attention to any of that. Um, I, I didn't buy that much Bitcoin. At the, I was using it. Like I wasn't really investing mm -hmm. in it. Um, I was 13. <laughs> so I can kind of forgive myself a little bit. But uh, it just made sense. I, I didn't think of it as an investment. I One of my friends uh, was kind of, you know, natively online and, you know, came up to me one day and said, have you heard about this Bitcoin thing? And I said, no, what is it? And, you know, he explained Bitcoin better than a lot of people do today, which is, you know, he goes, it's just internet money. And I was like, oh, internet money. Nice. That makes sense. <laughs> no, no questions, no skepticism. And so I think that for a lot of people, that initial knee-jerk reaction of like, that doesn't make any sense is what leads them to being orange-pilled because they have so many questions that mm -hmm. they need to like answer to scratch that itch. And then in the, in the process of trying to debunk Bitcoin – a lot of times people will wind up giving up and saying, all right, actually, I've answered all of these questions to my satisfaction. This is really cool. I had the opposite problem. I just said, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. And uh, I saw the price going up and down and didn't think much about it. I was like, oh, yeah, all right. I mean, it's not backed by anything, so it makes sense that it's volatile. I didn't understand that there was a supply cap. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand that we were early. I mean, there were already news articles all the time that were written about Bitcoin in 2013. So it didn't feel like some big secret that was, you know, if I don't know, I just had no reason to expect it to really go up much in value. Um, and I thought it was anonymous for like two and a half <laughs> or three years. So like I would tell people about Bitcoin and, and say, oh yeah, it's like anonymous internet money. So it wasn't until like 2016, tail end of 2015, that I you know, actually started to like do research into Bitcoin and, and learn about it. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I was a little – you don't hear people say this often, but I think I was a little too early into yeah. Bitcoin. I think that if I'd been a few years older, uh, uh would have been better. I probably would have been more likely to figure out that there was more going on here. It, totally. just, it just seemed intuitive and obvious. Yeah, and, you were growing up basically on the internet, yeah. right? And so it was internet money. And so you just thought it was just – Part yeah. of the course. Oh, it's it's yeah, it's worth like fifty bucks. Like, cool. All right, oh, it's worth like sixty-five dollars. Oh, cool. <laughs> like So you're in uh, middle school and high school. You have a uh on the periphery view and understanding of Bitcoin. Slowly over time you're getting to learn a little bit more about Bitcoin. You go to college, you go and get into a great school, into this fellows program, and you're in college. And then you want to take the story from there, because I'm really interested in how 
the leap again from going into college and then jumping into the first, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, your first real job, quote unquote, is founding uh, the Bitcoin Policy Institute. Yeah, I guess I had two kind of, I had a few jobs in between those two things. Notably, I was the head of policy at Bitcoin Magazine for uh, like six, seven months, something like that. Got it. So I, I did work in the space. Um, I interned at, uh, you know, UTXO, which was like a sort of Bitcoin hedge fund. Uh, did some other things in college. But yeah, my first real job was in the Bitcoin space. And my second real job uh, was was founding BPI. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, there, there's kind of an Alabama uh, Bitcoin mafia that I think you're alluding to. So uh, David Bailey, who is the uh, CEO of uh, Bitcoin Magazine, the Bitcoin Conference, was also a University of Alabama graduate, went uh, – in through the same program as me, the fellows program, and has kind of just solidified a University of Alabama to Bitcoin pipeline. So I think like half of, you know, Bitcoin yeah. magazine uh, employees went to Alabama or, or were even in this particular program. And that's amazing. And I, th I feel like there's going to be even more um, of these pipelines going into different specific Bitcoin focused companies, which is amazing. Now, I guess even before I go to the Policy Institute, I'm curious, what is even a think tank? Like I, I, I'm a think tank studying the future of money. And I always get confused. My mom was a, a nonprofit worker and I'm always just confused and, and curious by people's definitions of a quote unquote think tank. Yeah. Um, I don't know what a, I don't know have a great standard like universal definition of a think tank, but you know, generally, uh, a think tank is a group of individuals, um, usually with some particular expertise in a topic or series of topics, that write and think about uh, uh, you know government action, um, government policies, um, areas where government policy could improve, uh, issues that governments should address, uh, or problems with existing policy or regulation. So. You know, think tanks have been a part of the U.S. policy machine, I mean, at least dating back to the, you know, like kind of 60s or, or 70s. Um, and, and they've been sort of instrumental in, uh, uh, I mean, basically every public policy that you see, there's a really good chance that its origin was at a think tank. Interesting. Where, you know, academics or experts, you know, concocted it advocated for it. And so think tanks are really useful for uh, uh, kind of framing and policy communication, uh, kind of setting the uh, like agenda setting. Um, here are, you know, tasks that we need to achieve, right? We need to lower the burden of transaction fees on unbanked Americans, for mm -hmm. example. So a think tank like us may say, well, one way to do that would be to ease money transmitter laws to make it easier for lightning companies to build and grow in the United States. The same is true with, you know, any other public policy issue. So there'll be think tanks on both sides of basically any contemporary political debate that yeah. you can think of. And we, you alluded to this at the beginning with your CNBC interview. Um, and I know you guys are focused just on U.S. policy, correct? More or less, okay. yeah. Yeah, and so one of, and I know we're going to get into the weeds, but I am very curious on your opinion on this. Um, with the bipartisan bill that was proposed by, I believe, Senator Toomey and Senator Sinema, mm -hmm. um, which would exempt uh, Bitcoin transactions below $50, what's the probability of a bill like that being passed? Now, probably not that high. You know, in the future, probably extremely high. I do think that's the direction that we're heading. And you got to give a huge shout out to Coin Center here, to yeah. Jerry and uh, the the crew over there, because they've been advocating for this for for years. I think, if memory serves, there have been four bills in the House over the past few years uh, that have attempted to create a de minimis uh, exception from uh, capital gains tax for crypto transactions. This is the first time that it's been both bipartisan and bicameral where there's kind of a sister bill in the House and the one that you're referring to is the one in the Senate. Um, 
I, I think it's definitely the direction that we're heading. Um, will this particular bill be passed? Extremely unlikely. But that's not really why this stuff is important. Uh, it's important to the point I made earlier. It's about agenda setting. It's mm-hmm. about setting the frame. So when you look at, for example, Senator Lummis's, uh, uh bill, it's a similar story there. Like, is that bill likely to pass, you know, in its exact form like now? No. But when future reg- regulation, future policy is crafted, you know, it sort of sets the goalposts. Um, it sets the frame. It says here are uh, uh, good things to do for this industry like writ large. And so you know, it's similar to like Warren Davidson um, introducing a, the Keep Your Coins Act, the KYC yeah. Act, which was a really short bill, you know, had no probability of passing, but basically just said, hey, uh, Americans have a right to self-custody digital assets that should not be infringed. Now, that's valuable because uh, it gives us a, a, a frame of reference. It yeah. gives policymakers a frame of reference. And so two, four, eight years down the line, uh, now protecting self-custody is not some radical, crazy proposal. It's uh, it's something that's you know been introduced. It's been talked about. A, a sitting U.S. congressman has advocated for it. So – there's value basically in policy proposals and and bills being introduced even when they themselves are not passed. I, I think a, a good example to tie this up would be the 2016 election where Bernie Sanders runs on universal health care, uh, among other things. At the time, it's fairly controversial uh, even among the Democratic Party. Uh Four years later, it's basically every single Democrat running for running for president has some variation of, of universal health care. And, and those who are not advocating for universal health care found themselves in the minority. So Bernie Sanders did not achieve much of anything. He didn't achieve, you know, universal health care. But what he did do was reframe the Overton window and make advocating for universal health care a pretty normal and conventional thing. I think that's the best lens to look at a lot of the policy proposals and bills that you see uh, regarding Bitcoin and, and digital assets now. They they help set the Overton window, frame the conversation, mm-hmm. establish these sort of goalposts, and these types of things will eventually make their way into policy if advocates kind of keep doing their job. Totally. So one thing I am very cautious of is the advocates and their uh, biases or preconceptions. Like we all have different incentives in life, aspirations, biases. I am actually curious about yours. You know, we talked about, um, you know, we bipartisan. So we talked about politicians on the right side or the perceived right side or the perceived left side. Where do you stand if someone was like, hey, David, where, where are you? Oh, gosh, what a question. Um well, I think if you looked at my background, um, you'd probably scratch your head a little bit. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, when I was in college, uh, I co-founded a nonprofit called uh, ASAP, and uh, we disrupted about three and a half billion dollars worth of uh, financing into private prisons. So, uh, let, let, let's repeat that one more time. What did you? You're in college. Yeah. So I'm I'm like 20 years old. I'm in my dorm room. And I hear that the state of Alabama is going to uh, uh, build three mega prisons in Alabama uh, that are going to be uh, leased by, you know, from from private companies. In other words, we're going to spend, you know, billions of dollars of taxpayer money for giant prisons that we don't need, uh, that we won't even own at the end of the, you know, year, uh, the leases like 30 year, you know, expiry. And that just pissed me off. I was like, that's absurd. Like we, 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 this is not the direction our state needs to move in. So, um, yeah, it started off with just like making a group me, um, getting a couple of my friends involved. And then, you know, two months later we had like nearly a thousand students from 30 different colleges and law schools across the Southeast. Uh, and we engaged in a bunch of public pressure campaigns around the financial institutions that were underwriting the bonds for the prison construction. We, we realized or I realized pretty quickly that, you know, political advocacy was not going to be very useful. Um, you know, Alabama is very conservative. There's no real opposition. 
we knew that, you know, kind of going after this via markets was a far better uh, and more efficient way of, of, of achieving what we wanted than, you know, lobbying or, 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 or you know, protesting or, uh, uh, you know, asking nicely for governments to change their mind. We just said, you know what? You guys want to do this. We can't change your mind. It'll be a lot easier to change the minds of the financial institutions that are underwriting the bonds. Mm-hmm. And so we got – you know, international banks from like Barclays, KeyBank, Regions, like all, all of these different financial institutions to uh, realize that uh, this was a horrible, horrible PR, one, that it was a bad investment, two, for which there were, you know, comparable alternatives that did not involve like enslaving people, three, uh, and and four, they had an opportunity to look really good or really bad and they could choose. And that pitch wound up being pretty persuasive. So I, I, I give that example to say that, um, you know, that that work was mostly with people who would identify uh, as as like leftists. Um, most of the sort of prison abolition, anti-prison crowd, very, very far to the left. Um, you know, my biggest passion at this point in my life is Bitcoin, um, which a lot of people would say is, you know, libertarian or conservative. Uh so I, I guess my background would probably be a bit of a head scratcher to people that are apt to use uh, kind of broad labels. I don't really know what I would say. I'm kind of a centrist. I'm yeah. a pragmatist. I kind of separate what I want the world to look like in theory from, you know, where the world is now and which directions it could go to be better and how we can get there. Those are just two very different conversations. So. I guess the easy answer would be uh, I'm a radical, I'm a radical centrist with some some kind of crazy ideas uh, in theory. I love it, and so that the, and never I don't want to put people in boxes, and I never or I don't really want to label left, right, whatever. Um, but it's great to hear from your perspective how you think, so that it could potentially inform your policy or uh, advocacy, not policy. Um, and other conversations that you have with policymakers, right? So the big question that, I mean, why the Bitcoin Policy Institute? And what are you guys specifically, do- or here's a better question. What are you guys specifically doing to help advance Bitcoin adoption? Yeah. Um, the best way to explain it, uh, I'll, I'll just sort of give you my view on how this all breaks down. I think the fate of Bitcoin in the United States is largely uh, is largely an incentives game, right? There will be people who are incentivized to see Bitcoin flourish. There will be people who are incentivized to see it uh, attacked. I am relatively skeptical about, you know, especially like my individual, my sort of individually, my ability to do much to sort of change those headwinds. Like the chips are going to fall where they're going to fall. Uh, and I think Bitcoin's network effect and incentives are going to be the strongest thing that sort of keep it shielded uh, and keep it around. And what we do is sort of a, a derivative of that that incentive structure view of the world where we know that there are going to be, just like there are everyday people incentivized to support Bitcoin, there are going to be policymakers who are incentivized to support Bitcoin as well. The blocker to that is that a lot of policymakers would have no idea where to begin mm-hmm. in explaining why they support this thing. And so I think the best way to explain, you know, what BPI does, um, especially in relation to, say, uh, uh, Coin Center, uh, whereas Coin Center uh, does fantastic work on uh, crypto policy itself. Um, they're, they're a C4, so they engage in lobbying, they write legislation, they they are focused on the uh, uh, sort of nitty-gritty regulation of, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. We're sort of uh, uh, answering the next question, which is what are the policy implications of Bitcoin? How does this strengthen U.S. competitiveness, national security? How does it help everyday Americans? Why is it good for the United States? And so really what we do is we make policy-style arguments uh, for Bitcoin um, to sort of grease the skids and allow those incentives to play out uh, as efficiently as possible. Um, so if you, if you think Bitcoin is cool and you're a policymaker and you're not sure why it's cool and you're not sure how to respond to 
well, does this compete with the dollar? Does totally. it use a lot of energy? You know, why does this matter? Uh, BPI provides those those resources, those talking points. Yep. Uh, and we do it with really high-quality research from a credible group of, like, bipartisan scholars. So we've got, like, Austrian economists and – you know, like radical environmentalists who've all kind of banded together under the BPI banner and and really support Bitcoin. Yeah, and okay. I say radical environmentalists in air quotes. Uh, they're they're probably radical to the Bitcoin community, but uh, they're they're probably not very radical to the uh, rest of the kind For of sure. climate crowd. It's really interesting when you see um, the the Congress call these different types of hearings, right? Mm-hmm. And then they're like, "All right, we need a crypto hearing," and so they call up you know, the crypto company CEOs and they bring those folks in and here's a blockchain expert and so on, blah, blah, blah. There's no really, hey, let's call this CEO of Bitcoin, you know, and have a conversation with him or her. Um, And I think that's a role that you guys can also uh, potentially play. Yeah. And we're definitely not trying to speak for Bitcoin. So, you know, we don't we don't kind of walk around Washington and say, oh, yep, Bitcoin, that's us. Like, you know, we can speak for it. Uh, But you're right. That dynamic does play out. And uh, it's not necessarily to Bitcoin's advantage in this particular way. That's what makes Bitcoin like actually cool and makes it different from every other kind of shitcoin or, or crypto project is that incredibly neutral. It's truly decentralized. There is no CEO. Mm-hmm. And that's awesome. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're right to point out that when policy, you know, impacts industry, uh, there's a really standard template for how this stuff goes. Why? Right. Washington calls up the key stakeholders uh, from industry, get them in a room and say, OK, what are what do you all think about this? You know, can we reach a compromise? Can we Find uh, a policy middle ground that balances our desires with, you know, y'all's desires to make money and to to innovate. The trouble is that uh, uh, Bitcoin doesn't have a CEO, so who gets called, right? And so you see these meetings about the digital asset industry or the crypto industry exactly. that are, you know, uh, all of the attendees are CEOs of proof of stake companies, despite the fact that the overwhelming majority of the cryptocurrency market is proof of work. Mm-hmm. Um you know, depending on you know, whether or not Ethereum eventually merges, uh, you know, it'll still be the uh, uh, majority or the large plurality. But that that aside, it's notable and concerning that uh, stakeholders from a small sort of subsect of the broader industry make up, you know, 95 percent of its representation in, in Washington. Um, so I do hope that BPI can can fill that function, not not to speak for Bitcoin, but to have a Bitcoin seat at the table, Um, you know, whether it's us, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, having someone like Jack Maulers or Jack Dorsey Mm -hmm. be invited to testify or be invited to these meetings. Uh, You know, one of my ambitions for BPI is to uh, solidify this distinction between Bitcoin and crypto uh, in, in Washington and whether or not we're the sort of benefactors of that recognition that Bitcoin is different and deserves sort of special consideration uh, or not is less important to me. Uh, it's more important to me that when these meetings happen, when conversations are happening about the future of crypto in the United States, that there are people there who aren't grifters, that there are people there who understand what Bitcoin is and how it's different um, and can speak to uh, the asset that is the largest, most traded and most totally. widely distributed and held. Yeah. And the only a uh, slight correction I would make there is just it, Bitcoin, right? Um, and that's why, by the way, going to your site, um, which is a good segue as well, is like you break down your site into each of these uh, uh, sections based on the personnel uh, and based on the arguments. And one of the things that I absolutely love, I, I, I believe that every single, let's say, Fortune 500 company, there is a Bitcoiner within that organization trying to advocate uh, Bitcoin amongst their colleagues. But And they know how to talk the language. Like retail has a specific language. Banking has a specific language. Political advocacy, it seems like, even though I'm still very skeptical about just this whole world, seems like it has a specific language that you need to talk to and how to talk to these different types of, uh, of folks. So I think this is a huge – it can be a huge value add is by conducting this type of research and this type of policy paper or advocacy – to really start those conversations with these uh, type of folks. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, it's important to meet people where they are if your goal is to be convincing. You want to – I've said this before on other podcasts, but uh, – uh, and, and, you know, forgive me if this sounds, you know, pedestrian or obvious, but I, I think a lot of people don't either know or at least internalize this. If, if you want someone to agree with you about something, uh, you want to minimize the number of requisite things that yeah. they also have yes. to agree with to get to, in this case, you know, Bitcoin is good. Um so, you know, an example of that, uh, if you want to convince someone that, let's say, uh, um, that, that, that the blood alcohol content limit for drunk driving should be uh, uh, lowered to reduce drunk driving accidents, you probably don't want to start off by talking about the history of roads <laughs> or how, uh, you know, the wheelbases of Roman chariots don't really differ much from like <laughs> vehicles today. Like you don't need someone and with, with Bitcoin, right? You don't need someone to be, you know, convinced that, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Austrian view is correct. You don't need to convince someone that the world is ending to believe that Bitcoin is good. You don't have to convince someone that, uh, that, that, you know, yeah, I mean, the, the, all you have to do is say, look, internet money is good. Neutral internet money is good. Um, and so, you know, BPI's messaging and communication sort of strictly follows that principle of mine, which is just ignore the fluff and cut right to the chase. You know, what is it that people care about? In this case, with policymakers, they care about U.S. interests. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not going to spend too much time trying to convince someone that my entire worldview is correct and that to understand Bitcoin, they have to change their entire views on central banking, on governance, on monetary policy, on all of these other things, uh, it's far easier to say, look, here are key U.S. interests. Here is how an open, credibly neutral monetary network advances them. Yeah. And that's why I think the two-pronged approach, like, so even though I'm still skeptical about just playing that game, I think it's noble that you're doing this. But the grassroots uh, efforts at the local level or the constituents level to really push that and hopefully policymakers and uh, have the best interests of their constituents, which I, I fundamentally – I'm, a, I'm an op, eternal optimist. So I believe in uh, people. I believe in human ingenuity. Um, and I think that will push – Bitcoin will win because it's the best thing for people, right? Right. And that's a great example of what I was alluding to earlier when I said, you know, there's this kind of broader network of incentives that are going to play out how they're going to play out. And, and adoption and this idea of you know, constituents holding Bitcoin is, is like a perfect example of that, right? Like what what more powerful tool to, you know, persuade policymakers than uh, uh, that Bitcoin is good than to say, hey, look, the overwhelming majority of your constituents own this stuff. And we're not there yet. Um, I think we will. Yep. Uh, and so that's a great example of what I'm talking about. A politician sees, oh, crap, like a large percentage of people in my district are are Bitcoiners, are Bitcoin users. Well, I guess I've got to be pro-Bitcoin now. What does that mean? What, well, how do I go explain to my colleagues that, that Bitcoin is How good? do I learn? Yeah, what? how do I learn? Where do I get information about this? How do I come out as pro-Bitcoin without getting mauled by my colleagues for hating the dollar or being a you know financial terrorist or a yep. ocean boiler yeah. <laughs> or whatever else you know someone is afraid they'll be called if they come out and say they support Bitcoin? So – that's really what BPI does is just leveraging Bitcoin's extant network effects and trying to clear the debris as much as possible to let that kind of hyper-Bitcoinization plane take off, if you will. My man, kudos to you. Seriously, I'm really proud of you. You do inspire me. Thank and, you. And um, uh, I think your work with Grant and the team, uh, Matt and I are proud to host you and have you guys working out of the Bitcoin park. Um, it's the least we can do, especially, you know, running a nonprofit and every day you're just grinding away, grinding away. So, uh, one way people can help is by donating. Yeah. So, um, even though I, I've donated a, a few times and I'm, you know, go actually go hit that donate button. I'll donate one more time to you guys while we're doing it live here. Um, we come up here, simple donation button. And you're going to explain to the audience why you have to use a third-party platform, but um, and not like a, your own BTC Pay server, 
and uh, run it yourself. Um, why don't you type in 21 because I like custom numbers. Um, so we went to join generous. Can you explain a little bit why we're on this like third party? Yeah. Um, it's definitely not the ideal long-term setup. The the trouble, the reason we can't just like throw up a, a, a wallet address is the IRS requires us to take information uh, on our donors. So, you know, to donate to us, you kind of have to dox yourself. Um, now that information fortunately gets to stay between us and the donor and the IRS. But um, we can't take money that we don't – we can't tell the IRS here's who donated this and here's where it came from. So the reason we use Generous is because they're built for nonprofits. And so they handle payment processing, the API, like the plugin on our website, and they do all of the backend uh, uh, accounting and uh, compliance stuff. So uh, they do take a small fee. Uh, but, you know, we, we sort of found that it was – by far cheaper than competitors and saved us money because it's it's all of those things kind of rolled up into one. So uh, even if we were taking donations that did not have some fee, we'd be paying for it on the back end with with compliance stuff. We're going to hit the Bitcoin button, but by the next time we can remove that crypto stuff as well. And how many yeah. crypto donations have you guys gotten? Thankfully, we've received – well, I, look, if somebody wants to dump Sheeb to us, I don't care. Like <laughs> we need money. So if someone wants to pay with one of these things – And uh, just convert it over. Yeah. You know, I actually disagree, right? It's like having the Bitcoin and, and the crypto option, right? If you want to give us Bitcoin, awesome. You know, to date, we have only received Bitcoin in U.S. dollars. We have not received – you know, Dogecoin donations. Yeah. But look, if you're holding shitcoins, what better way to get rid of your shitcoins than donate them to, you know, BPI, where I can promise you they will be swiftly liquidated <laughs> and turned into some some more sound money. That's fair. The only uh, counter to that would be just if there's confusion around your advocacy, if you're accepting it. But mm. we're not going to dwell on that. Uh, so I yeah, $21, we can say, don't show my name. You can hide the amount. You can choose not to share this information with us. Perfect. And you can donate. Let's go over the lightning. Okay, open note opens up. Lightning yep. there. So for those following along on the podcast, just going to. All right. Perfect. Well, and so I'm going to have dinner tonight. Thanks, gonna have dinner. Absolutely. So what do you got? Okay, so you guys need money. We need to increase donations such that you and the team can um, do the things that you could do to advance Bitcoin policy or advocacy amongst policymakers. That's right. So that would be your biggest ask for folks. Yeah. Um, so we we launched BPI uh, six months ago at the start of January. And uh, I mean, I'm pretty proud of what we've done since then. I mean, first of all, we assembled this really awesome team. A lot of these names you'll know from Bitcoin Twitter, others you you may not. So, you know, Grant and I run this. Uh, Jason Brett is a former FDIC regulator, uh, big Bitcoin orange-pilled guy, uh, does a great job. Ian Gaines used to be the head of communications for Black Bitcoin Billionaires, uh, and, you know, we're super thrilled that that Ian's on board. Some of these names, you know, Troy Cross, you probably know, Matt Pines, uh, Ovik, um, you know, Peter McCormick's done a good job of getting most of these people so far on his show. That's great. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to date, we've had uh, dozens of, of op-ed, sort of pro-Bitcoin op-eds placed in mainstream outlets. We've uh, had over 50 meetings in Washington with Policymakers and staffers, we've had uh, in-person kind of roundtable briefings on Bitcoin and national security. We have responded to uh, all of the, you know, sort of Biden administration's uh, requests for information, you know, following their executive order. We facilitated a letter from 21 global human rights leaders to uh, Congress uh, talking about how Bitcoin is a vital tool for freedom We've published first-of-their-kind white papers explaining why Bitcoin benefits uh, U.S. national security, uh, the environment, uh, economic growth, and, and freedom and prosperity for not only Americans but, you know, sort of global citizens. Um, you know, there, there's a lot to be done. 
Uh, but I'm really, really proud of what we've uh, achieved so far. To my knowledge, we are the only Bitcoin you know, group uh, uh, that has actually responded to the White House's uh, uh, requests for information, cool. um, you know, kind of consistently uh, throughout this this process. And so I think our proof of work really speaks speaks for itself. Amazing. And I know I've said this now the third time, but I'm very proud of you. Keep up the great work. BTCpolicy.org. And where else can people uh, find you? They can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm David Zell underscore. Amazing. I think the title of this podcast is going to be Bitcoin is Good. So... <laughs> Um, I, I really, definitely agree with that. This was fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed this, David. So um, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom, for uh, being here and uh, helping produce this. Um, I think this is a great place to wrap. So we'll see you next time. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you got as much joy in hearing from David as I did. Keeping with the plan to release an episode every week, I've queued up some amazing guests for episodes four, five, and six, which I plan to record early this week. So if you're enjoying the pod and want to auto-magically stay up to date, please like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. It would mean a lot. I've found so much joy in doing this and the feedback has been heartwarming. I'm planning to double down my podcasting efforts. More to come here. What else do I do in Bitcoin? Well, I curate a morning email about Bitcoin at wakeupwithbitcoin.com. You can skim for 30 seconds or dig into it for 30 plus minutes. The choice is yours and it's free. So consider subscribing or passing along to friends who are interested in Bitcoin focused info each morning. Lastly, come visit us in Nashville at Bitcoin Park. I'll be hosting a hands-on mining workshop with Dr. FOMO this Wednesday. We've reached capacity for this workshop, but if you'd like to join the waitlist or be the first to know about future workshops, meetups, or events, join our meetup page at meetup.com forward slash Bitcoin Park. Until next time.